Hello, everyone. Stucker you here, and welcome back to the History of Everything podcast. Uh, now, today's episode, we are not going to be joined by Gabby. Gabby is actually at work here. I am joined by a new guest that is specifically here for the purpose of talking to us about all the different things that are about, well, probably fumbling with my words at this point for what it is I'm going to be doing. It's been a while since I've had to do an interview with someone. I mean, I guess this isn't the case of an interview. It's a conversation. Do you, do you want to like go ahead and introduce yourself so that people know what it is that they're getting themselves into? I guess I can fumble around too. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is John. I'm a Jewish Israeli historian. And uh, I guess I'm here to talk about Jewish history and history. So John had reached out to me a couple days ago uh, when I had talked about stuff under the 14th century. If you all remember the book that we did a couple weeks back when it was how terrible the 14th century was and all the different kinds of chaos and crap and everything that occurred in it. Well, during that period, there was a lot of stuff that happened to the Jews, which to, to be fair, when we're saying that that's not exactly saying much when it comes to history. I mean, John, you could probably agree with me on that note that's saying, yeah. oh, yes. And during this century, uh, a lot of things happened to the Jews. Yes. When you study Jewish history, you have to study world history so that everything comes into context. So, yeah, it gets a little um, intertwined. I still remember there was um, there's a I remember a class that I had had back at my university. And when it was explained like that to me for or because it was going into like the cycle of the evolution of like the Abrahamic faiths and specifically with Judaism, how Judaism evolved to what it is, say, today or in the modern sense versus what it was. A lot of that stems from the Great Jewish Revolt, which is the topic of what we're going to be talking about today, and specifically the diaspora, because if you look at Judaism as a whole, going back thousands of years, there's a very key feature within Judaism that was not really present among so many other societies. They had similar ideas, but it was taken to such an extreme level within Judaism. And you'll probably agree with me when I talk about that. And that is the cycle of favor that things go well for Jerusalem and Jews as a whole when God supports them and thing. And once they do something or something goes wrong, like maybe they say or perform some kind of action that displeases God, the favor goes away, they get conquered, and then they'll get liberated again once they've purified themselves to be good Jews again. And that, that is a very much is, yeah, that very much is the kind of the, the covenant with God. You've got this famous scene in um, the Bible in which Moses puts half the tribes on one mountain, half the tribes on the other mountain. And says, okay, if you're good, these good things will happen. And if you're bad, these bad things will happen. And the bad list is like 30 times as long as yep. the good list. Yep. And you can see that time and time again throughout history. So one of the core tenets of the Jewish faith is literally trials. It is, we are going to go through some horrible shit. But we have to make it through or else things will not get better. Because that is also our why, life. That yeah. is the cycle of Judaism. Um, right. And that was the cycle of Judaism up until kind of the last century and a half when kind of there was almost a, the enlightenment and you had the movement towards a Jewish nation where basically Jews said, OK, wait a minute, we can kind of make our own fate to a certain extent. Yeah, no, exactly. 
the what it is that we're going to be talking about today going back is going to largely be based around the stuff in the first century and i guess a little bit going into like the, the prelude of it because what you would see in the centuries after in the millennia after of just the diaspora jews going around all over the world uh the ingratiating themselves into different cultures the developments that you would see from it, the the loss of tradition and the development of entire new traditions, that specifically came from this time. That specifically came from this event. And that is why it is such a big deal and why I wanted to talk about it. Because I think that if you're going to talk about anything with Jewish history, if you're going to use a starting point for recent history, which got to say, it feels kind of weird that I'm saying recent history. And we're talking about something that is 2,000 years old. But I mean, the religion and the people as a whole are very old. So this is, relatively speaking, quite recent. Right. I mean, also, you know, you've kind of got this this, um, point of connection of of all the Abrahamic faiths kind of at that. And while there had been diasporas before this, this really was the... The grand one. This was the big one. Yeah. I mean, we'll probably get to just how bad it got at the end, you know, just the the Titus's victory and the whole thing. But we'll get there, I'm sure. Of course. So in order to get to that point, we have to kind of start about at the beginning for anyone who may not know exactly what it is that we are talking about. So Jerusalem, Palestine, the region as a whole, this was something that was controlled by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, of course, for anyone that is familiar with this channel and how much of a fanboy I am of it, as is pretty much the majority of every Western-ish history buff that first kind of starts to get into things. It's like the first thing that they jump into. It was... Guilty. Oh, yeah. No, everyone is like that. It was pretty much the perfect OG empire of the day. Like we're talking about with something that had insane military power and the Romans used that over the centuries to drastically expand their empire. And then once those regions were pacified, Roman political power would then have to be installed into the capital of those locations and start ingratiating the territories into them. Because many people may not realize this, but when they think of something being conquered, you're thinking probably, okay, military comes in, they take everything over, they kill a bunch of people, that's it, it's conquered, it's done, it's ingrated into the empire. But that's not how it works. In fact, oftentimes in the beginning, what would happen is that there would be a mixture between hard occupation, where you're talking about military occupation, intervention, upkeep of Roman laws, like the overall overarching empire-wide laws, and instilling Roman religion and customs, and then soft power, because we're talking about the use of entertainment, technology, trade, just cultural gravitas in order to gradually take things over and change a society. And this was done everywhere. Roman rule was, generally speaking, accepted across the empire and enjoyed by most places where they conquered. I I like to say that the Romans kind of kept the Al Capone philosophy of walk softly and carry a big stick. Yeah, yeah. Though I don't think they walked as softly in that case, because as we're about to talk about, when they came down, they came down hard. Right. I mean, there very much was kind of this one strike rule with them, which kind of started with Caesar, where it was like, you know, you can cross me once and I'm going to be pretty angry, but I'll let you go. Cross me a second time. It's on. Oh, yes. No, absolutely. I firmly agree with that. 
Hey everyone, it's Takuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And so the thing that you see here, what we're going to be talking about is initially the Roman rule in Palestine. Because Palestine, Israel, Judea, like the, these, this region, whatever name it is that you would like to use to describe it, this is something that over the course of the centuries prior to it had been fairly well Hellenized. And it was a, not a direct province initially, but rather it was a client state under the Roman Empire. I mean, you're, you're probably familiar more with the, I don't know the degree to which their autonomy actually, or like to what degree their autonomy was underneath the empire because client states for anyone listening can have any number of different rules. You can have some that are more closely tied to the empire and you could have some that are almost independent states. They just essentially pay vassal tax to the overarching power. So John, are you actually more familiar with um, what degree they were a client underneath the Roman empire? Because that was something that I was actually curious about and I couldn't find the degree of information for how closely controlled it was. So it was actually, it, it was kind of, they controlled certain aspects because Jewish life is kind of split between the political and the religious. Mm -hmm. They put their foot very heavily down on the political, but they also kept their finger on the religious. So for instance, the high priest was kind of, that, that was appointed by Rome. Um, that, that was the ethnarch, the, the religious leader of the nation. And this actually led almost directly into the forming of the Pharisees who would become the rabbis and the it, kind of who became modern Judaism. You know, so they basically came in and they took their own monarch. They were like, okay, we're sticking Herod. And if you're familiar with Herod, you're familiar with just a completely insane monster with, you know, fantastic architectural skills. But it's like, you know, you can't do anything against him. He was a person who utilized his power to maintain that power but he was simultaneously a visionary. I think that would be yes. a both. I think that would be a little bit more accurate. Some people, depending on where you fall, usually religious wise, people view him as either a sympathetic leader who had to do what he did underneath the Romans or a tyrant. It entirely depends on what kind of perspective or how closely you're adhering to, say, a religious view of the specific history. I agree with that to a certain extent, but there are things that he did, which were, I think we can all agree, crazy, kind of like, you know, the whole thing with his wife, where he assassinated his wife so he could marry a different woman, realized he regretted it, and then preserved his first wife in honey. What? You, wait, you don't do that? That's not um, like part of your normal everyday life? What? Yeah, well, no, but apparently he, like, would spend time with her for the next, basically until he died, which was something like 10 years. 
All right, I got to say the last part about spending time with her. I, I I knew about the whole assassination thing. I didn't realize that he had actually done that with Honey and then had kept her around. <laughs> to be oh, fair, yeah. oh, that, no. is, that is a degree like of debauch, not even debauchery. That is a degree of eccentricity that I, I was not aware of. Yeah, he would go down to her tomb regularly and just sit there and like wail and mourn that she had died. Like he had killed her. It's not like she had died of illness. I mean, he, he had felt bad. Her. Listen, for any of the ladies listening, you know, like, it. would you forgive a man? Would you forgive a man? I mean, at least, you know, when he calls you honey or sweetie, he means that in a more literal sense now. <laughs> well, a little afterwards, he did kill all of her sons. So, oh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so he was a nut job, but he did build Masada, which, you know, obviously is, is pretty famous. He built uh, Caesarea or Caesarea, which is um, pretty famous. It's a uh, seaside town. It's, it looks like it's been transplanted from Rome. It's, it's incredible. Like, you'll go there, and you will think you're in a seaside Roman town. I would with, love to see that. Yeah. I, I can't wait to be able to do more traveling here in the future. Right. And then uh, he also uh, built a fortress in Jerusalem, which kind of played a big part in the revolt. And he raised the walls by like nine meters. That is extensive. Uh, which I'm, how much how much is that in uh, feet? A uh, meter is just over three feet. Right. Or is it just under three feet or so? I, I, if you want to say it, he raised a, it by yeah, over yeah. 20 feet, which is extensive. Right. Um, and this was raised over the wall that had already been existing. And in fact, the Roman uh, procurator at the time was like, yeah, cut that out. That, that, that looks very revolutionary, and we don't like that. So you're done. Okay, so it's, it's uh, 3.2 meters. He raised it by 30 feet equivalent, which that is, that is massive. Right. And just the, like that's the part of the Western Wall that if you go and pray, that's basically the part that comes out because because of the way layers get built up on top of layers, that's the, that's the part of the Western Wall you see now. Mm -hmm. Among rulers, the way that Herod acted, what he was, was a person who was in power. But specifically, he was part of an elite class of people within society that were Hellenized Jews. Now, we say Hellenized right. in this case. We're, we're, not, we're not talking like, oh, they were Greek, but specifically... Hellenization is something that in the eastern parts of the Roman Empire is something that had been common for centuries. I mean, the language of culture, of trade, of everything in the eastern half of the empire was not Latin. It was Greek. Yes, Latin was still the government, like the language of law. But Greek is primarily how it is that you'd be able to spread ideas. It was the thing that thanks to the conquests of Alexander the Great and the Greek traders and all the different peoples before, that is what you would see. Like it, that it was a Greek elite that would have a higher place in society. Yeah. I mean, the Greeks were like the teachers to all the aristocracy in Rome. They all had Greek teachers. So there was this really intertwined relationship going on. And that also transferred to Judea. And um, Herod was actually not Jewish, technically. He was an, an Idumean, which was a, a people that had been conquered by the Jews about a, 150 years before. Really? And so. Wait, I'm, did, yeah. no, I missed that detail. What, so can you explain that? 
Okay, so up until uh, the Romans came in, you had the Hasmonean dynasty. And what happened was is actually the Romans came in because the Hasmonean dynasty had come down to two brothers who began a fratricidal war. These two guys hated each other. And so each one of them separately went to Pompey, uh, Pompey the Great, and said, come in on my side. You know, they invited him in, you know, a little bit like a vampire. I, I, you know, it's just kind of it's funny. And so Pompey came in and was like, okay, um, yeah, I'm in charge now. Yeah, that, 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 was, that, that was a very Roman thing to do. Usually what would end up happening is that it, when you talk about the patron-client system within Rome, the accepting of help from a patron at that point meant that you were subservient to the patron. So asking Rome for help is the equivalent of, the, of going like, hey, we'll be your vassal, at least for Roman <laughs> terms. Yeah. <laughs> He basically sided with one of them and made him the ethnarch, even though like, he shouldn't have been. Alive. Anyhow, it's just it's like he basically walked in, replaced all the chairs, replaced everybody in power and was like, OK, oh, by the way, here's where your taxes go to. Don't forget this address. And it goes up by 10 percent every year. See ya. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Ah, uh, yeah. So naturally, with that and taxes, uh, that's going to piss off a number of people. There was actually, there was a word that I saw in here the, about elites. Sadducees? Sadducees. Sadducees. Okay, um, so that's how you pronounce it. I saw that and I was just, I, I hadn't heard that word before, but it was talking about the elites of society that Rome would favor, uh, that Rome would favor, and that these are the people who naturally would defend Herod, who was the client king of Rome. But for the majority of the common people, who were not ingratiating themselves into a more Greek-speaking society, they were not so happy about this. Oh, no, no. The Sadducees are kind of like the 1% of today, where, yeah, they had a lot of power, they had a lot of spending power, but people hated them. Uh, I mean, they, they basically lived in, like, gated communities. In this case, we're talking about ancient times where they probably were actually walled settlements or walled compounds, effectively, that they would live in. Well, basically, but they also, the Sadducees were also the group that ended up as the high priest. And that's one of the reasons they were so wealthy is there's a kind of a religious text that happens every year that would go to Sadducees who oh. would then pour <laughs> that into their own pockets and into the temple. What? So the temple, yeah. So the temple at this point was a a massive repository of wealth, but the Sadducees were essentially taking money that was kind of supposed to go out to social welfare and being like, 
well, we kind of need it. So I'm just going to divert it, you know, into my community. Oh, dear Lord. As you can imagine, people hated them. Yeah, no, I, I can definitely imagine that. And so you get people like if anyone is familiar with the word of uh, like the Pharisees, the Pharisees would arguably uh, merge into the zealots that we would see later. And they were deeply opposed to all of this, and especially the inroads that Hellenistic style religious institutions were trying to make into the Jewish religion. So the, the Romans, what they had effectively done, just like what you were describing, is that they had made a class divide in the Jewish religion. Or they, they had exasperated something that was already kind of there because of previous Hellenistic rulers, and they just ingrained that into the political status quo. They dialed it up to 11. Yes, yes. Um, the, the Pharisees were, I, I'm going to call them the good guys. That's the people who we kind of nowadays see as, as the rabbis. These are the people who continue Judaism. The word comes from haprushim, which means those who withdraw. And they were not interested in, in having any contact with the Romans. They were like, look, we live in our towns. You guys do your thing. We'll send you our taxes. Just leave us alone, please. The Zealots, which were a different group, were like, they, they were, um, they were brigands because they couldn't afford to live, but their brigandry was mainly at the Sadducees and at the Romans. Specifically going after the powers that were taking things from the economy, which I, I, from my research going into it, that's what it is that I had seen that the, the serious corruption of the Senate appointed Roman uh, procurator, that the corruption of the Senate appointment. You're talking about the local governor, uh, Flores? Yes, 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 Flores. That's the guy that I'm trying to think of here. So these, these guys, when you had all this power that was um, transferred over to these elites, it effectively ignored the, the issues and plights of what was happening with common Jews. And most of the profits that you were seeing from the goods, from the taxes, from everything that was going on in the markets, that wasn't going back into the Judean economy. That was going straight to these like Sadducees guys. That was going to these elites who essentially controlled the entire thing. Which pissed off and, everyone else. Yeah. And and of course, the Sadducees were then favoring the Romans. So the whole spark of this rebellion actually started in Caesarea, which the, the, the people who started this problem, their complaint was Caesarea was becoming too Jewish. Too so, Jewish. Okay, we're talking about, of course, Jewish. yeah, because they're they're gradually over time. I think this goes back to the soft power comment from earlier. They are gradually yeah. trying to convert people over to the Roman religion and way of life. Right. And so this synagogue in Caesarea, there was some sort of land dispute. It's not really clear, but the landlord either hired or these goons came and basically took auguries on the steps of the synagogue. Which was pretty, it's like the, the, one of the biggest religious insults. It would be kind of like carrying a dead body into, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a... Performing of a satanic sacrifice on the steps of a church. Basically. Like that's, that's um, what it would be to them because you're talking about engaging in another religion that is not only foreign to Judaism... But its mere existence, considering what the tenets of Judaism are, its existence is an insult. So to perform the act on the steps of a synagogue is a grievous insult. 
Oh, and the kicker is this was done in full view of the uh, governor's troops and the cops who did nothing. Yep. Yep. Because they're, they're naturally so, not going to want to piss off the people in charge. Right. So the Jewish petitioners came to Gessius Flores and they said, you know, we want you to hear our petition. They've just profaned our synagogue. And he goes, look, I'm not even going to listen unless you give me eight talents of silver. Um, and therein lies more of the corruption charges. So eight talents of silver was roughly $3 million in today's money. Yep, yep. For anyone who's a little bit confused, when they're talking about a talent, a talent is a unit of weight rather than an amount. So eight talents of silver is that th those are that's some serious ingots you have there of silver that, that you got some blocks that you're hauling around. Right. And so they give this money to Gessius Flores and Gessius Flores tells them to bugger off. They start rioting and within like five minutes, they realize nobody's rioting with us. And so they're thrown in, in jail for basically paying the governor to listen to their side of the story. Oh, man. Oh, man. So Flores. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. It gets even better because Flores then goes to Jerusalem and raids the temple. Yes. And he takes what is a reasonably small amount. And I don't even know how you count that. It's like he raids the temple, but he takes a small amount. So it's okay. And the Jews were so just aghast and kind of amused by this that a bunch of these youths started walking around kind of with hunched backs and rags going, please, we're raising money for Gessius Flores, who has none. Um... <laughs> As you can imagine, he lost his temper, started killing a bunch of people, and then Jerusalem began getting really violent. He fled. And so the, the Jerusalem was all of a sudden in this massive uproar. Now, this was the moment that I, I guess you could say that really was the path of no return. The zealots who were now in the city blockaded all of the Roman soldiers into a single tower. and. Uh, brought the Pharisees to take terms with them. So the Pharisees came and they basically said, look, if you come out, you lay down your arms, we'll let you out of this city. Mm -hmm. The Roman legionnaires, the, the Roman, you know, the local garrison said, okay, fine. They came out unarmed and the zealots butchered them. Yep, as, as would happen here, which is not only is it an act against the government that is being done there, but specifically they, that... That's one of the things that bothered me is those actions. I understand why they would do it, viewing as a religious insult, but you have to think things in terms of practicality. Doing they were trying such, to force the Pharisees to be in. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, but doing such an action is specifically going to make sure that the worst of the worst reprisals are done against you. Because I, I can't help but imagine that they are not aware of the things that have occurred previously in history. So... When they talk about, for example, what happened with the Roman Empire, or is it the time before it was an empire, when Rome was facing off against Carthage, do you have any idea just how many Romans died over the initial wars with Carthage? We're talking about uh, like you, battle after battle after battle where they just got wiped out. And then what would they do? Raise a new army. Just draft in more men. The loss of it, some is just going to piss them off more and they're going to raise more people against you. So the thing about this was the Zealots actually did have a plan. Well, sort of. 
first of all, they, they there were a whole bunch of messiahs popping up at this time. Like there was a guy from Egypt and a guy from from Galilee who basically came along and said, I am the messiah. Listen to my words. And so, as you mentioned before, Jews are always seeking this kind of redemption. Mm -hmm. um, so they actually had quite a bit of power. But the second thing was you had the um, Parthian Empire, which was kind of on the border. And they were hoping that Parthia would uh, do to them what they had done to Armenia, which I don't know if you want to explain. Um, well, for anyone that's confused about Armenia, Armenia for the longest time has served as a uh, uh, kind of buffer state between the Roman Empire and whatever power is in the East, whether that is Seleucia, whether that was Parthia, whether that was the Sassanids. For centuries, Armenia would be fought over back and forth by the two powers in order to create a in-between state that could share the brunt of the damage when one side decided to invade the other. But it also gave them a certain level of security. Yes. It was kind of like if you invade, you know, if the Romans invade, the Parthians help us. If the Parthians invade, the Romans help us. Yes. The Parthians are not really interested in this. Yes. Hence, a buffer state. Yes. So, yeah, no, the, the, the zealots were nuts. And they had just forced the Pharisees to be part of their war crime. The news of this goes up to, to Syria, where the proconsul is living. Cestius Gallus, who is the, um, the legate of Syria, marches his men down. He sees the absolute wildness that's going on in Jerusalem. And he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go in there. I'm, I'm just going to like park a little outside. Yeah, because you're asking so for just down. getting screwed over by guerrilla warfare at that point. Right. Well, that's what happens is he does get screwed over by guerrilla warfare because he sets up in a valley. Now, our main source is Josephus, so it's a little hard to tell whether or not this number is accurate. But the zealots descend on him and murder 6,000 legionnaires and take their standard. Which, for anyone that is confused by that for what that may mean... Um, the taking of a legion standard is as great of an insult as you could possibly have for the Roman military. That is the thing that is the center upon which all of them would gather. That is, that is the symbol of their legion that they would dedicate decades to. So the loss of a standard is something that is only met by continuous military campaigns to reclaim said standard. That is quite literally why different campaigns were started against Parthia in order to reclaim legion standards. The, uh, yeah, there were entire wars that were started just for the standard. So obviously the zealots knew that they were, you know, they, they were like doing everything they could to provoke Rome to react in as violent means as possible so that they would come down and say, we're going to kill everybody. As soon as they do that, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, all of them have to come under the Zealots and say, okay, you're the only ones who have any military training, you know, tell us what to do. This yep. is their plot. Yep. And so all of this then goes back to Emperor Nero, who is pissed. For anyone who is um, a little bit more familiar with the Roman emperors or anything like that, Nero is definitely one of the more colorful figures in Roman history. I say colorful with that color oftentimes being red for blood. And he was. Uh, yeah, he murdered his mother, which I think is kind of like pretty high up there in the level of insanity. But he was an interesting emperor. 
Oh, um, no, he was. He was definitely interesting. It's just when yeah. we're talking things in ancient history, the amount of times that we would mention uh, fratricide, patricide, matricide, you know, any kind of killing or relatives or relations, that's a very common thing going back in history. Uh, and when we say Nero is interesting, he's interesting in the same way someone like um, Ted Bundy is interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you're like studying the... The crazy ones, the kind of ones that you sit there in a popcorn and you're safe home and just watching think, damn, what was going through that guy's head? A lot of unpleasant things. A lot of unpleasant so things. Oh, yeah. So Nero's pissed and he brings in Vespasian and and um, I'm not sure uh, how his to pronounce his son, in Titus. Titus. OK, that's how you pronounce it, because in, in Hebrew, it's Titus. Yeah, right. So Vespasian was the superstar general of the time. Kind of this. I mean, he conquered most of Britain. And so he comes down with the 5th, the 10th, the 12th, and the 15th legions. Now, the 10th legion is pretty infamous for a couple of reasons. You familiar, uh, are you familiar with the 10th legion? I am familiar with the 10th legion, yeah. Well, if I recall correctly, wasn't the 10th legion the legion that, that was like Julius Caesar's, like that was his legion, was the 10th? Yes, that was Julius Caesar's legion. And so they were the best of the best. This, I mean, this was a couple generations after Julius Caesar, but these guys were still considered the best of the best. There was that, that was the legion you gravitated into if you were a step above the other. They also had the infamous Skava's wings, which I don't know if you've done an episode on Skava. I have. But not. It's definitely something you should do. He deserves an episode. Or at least one of your shorts. I mean, I, I really enjoy your YouTube shorts, and I would love <laughs> Thank to see you. I appreciate it. No, I mean that's how I that's how I I came across your stuff. I was like, wow, no, this is great. So okay, so uh, Skava's wings were these elite cavalry units, and so they come in again. This is Josephus giving us numbers. So he says that each legion is around 20,000, made up of 6,000 legionnaires and 14,000 auxiliaries. Mm -hmm. it, it's a little hard to know how accurate that is. Um, so see when we're looking at the resources and what things say here, yeah. we'll say at the end, and this is, I guess, a little bit of a spoiler for this, but over the course of this conflict that we're talking about, per Josephus or Josephus, I'm not exactly sure how I would necessarily pronounce the name. I think according to him, he says something along the lines of a million Jews died. Because of this war. Yeah. And we're talking about that. Numbers going back into history can be very well exaggerated. I mean, hell, the Romans were famous for doing this, for exaggerating the, uh, the, the numbers of enemies that they came up against. Specifically because the more of them that you kill, the greater that you look. That's something that is just very common throughout history. Right. So, so Vespasian and um, his son Titus returned to... Judea. And they're they're marching down. The Judeans know they're marching down, and so they set up a military council. And they send Yosef ben Matikyahu, who is Josephus, to take over the Galilee. Now he has no military experience. Not a great way to start things um, out. Yeah. And not only that, there's a local brigand called John of Giscala, who basically comes to him and tells him. Hey, let me take over your logistics. How about it? And so Josephus, intimidated, of course, says yes. And it just happens. It's just without a fight. It just happens. Yeah. 
he he now starts paying an inflated price for his own supplies. Oh, God damn. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course, people are war profiteering no matter what time period you're talking about is always going to be present. So here's the here's the kicker, though, that I always found so funny was John of Gisco then takes the money and bribes the Sadducees to make him the head of the Galilee region. And so he basically he kicks Josephus out of a job. And Josephus goes to his parents and he complains and his father, who's a Sadducee, gets him reelected. But at this point, John of Giscala is so popular among the people that he's like, OK, sure, you can you can be the leader, quote unquote. So Josephus was, was handed a pretty crap hand. Yes, from the outset, it was like this. And everyone is just doing everything yeah. they can to make it worse and harder to manage. So there, there were two battles that happened before Josephus is captured. Well, one is the one where Josephus is captured, and the other one is, and that's Gamla. And the reason why Gamla is interesting is because we actually know that Vespasian was injured, which means he was leading his troops. Yes, yes. Vespasian is, was some, this is a reason why his men loved him, is because he would actually get himself involved. Right. And, and Titus was the same way, but he, he got injured, and because he was injured, there were some atrocities done at Gamla. But skipping forward, he then goes to uh, Yodfata, which is, which is where Josephus is. This is a siege of Yodfata. Josephus has no military experience. He lasts for 47 days. I to mean, be fair, considering against, the time with no experience, holding out for over a month is probably pretty impressive. I mean, people could hold out for longer in other set circumstances, but it really depends upon supplies. Holding out for that long of a time period is not too bad. Not too bad. No, not too bad. So then what happens is there's, I think there's 47 people left. And Josephus says, well, none of us want to fall captives to the Romans because the Romans will send us to the, the Circus Maximus to be killed off. Or, sorry, the Circus Maximus wasn't built yet. We'll send us to be gladiators or they'll crucify us. So how about we do this? Each man kills the other man and then we split off and then we kill the other guy and then we split off and we kill the other guy. And he figures this out so that by the end, he's the only person who hasn't killed himself. <laughs> Because, because you can't point, kill yourself because if you kill yourself that is an insult that gets like is the whole reason to be able to do so because you can't just fall on your own sword or take poison or anything like that because then uh like that's part of the religion you can't do that suicide suicide is like one of the greatest sins so josephus walks out there walks up to vespasian and greets him oh great caesar and um you can kind of imagine vespasian's reaction it's basically somebody coming up to a general and saying, oh, president of the United States. <laughs> you know, just try to increase you, get on their good side, you know, make them make them make them feel good. Wine and dine them. Right. So Josephus kind of played himself off as a mystic. And so he ended up kind of as the uh, local liaison, the historian and I guess a pet. Um, yeah, so he's pet. With <laughs> just subservient. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably the best way you could describe it at that point for saving his skin. Yeah, so basically he just like, you know, is is at Vespasian and, and Titus's side for the rest of the war. While this is going on, Simon Bargiora, who's a different general, takes over Jaffa. He, there's a question whether he steals them or makes them agree 
to form a blockade. All the ships, they form a blockade of Egypt so that Rome can't get its grain. Ah, uh, yeah. And then now at that point, now the Romans would essentially be able to march on to Jerusalem with very little supplies they would be able to come towards them, meaning any kind of protracted siege is just going to turn into a little bit of a shit show. Oh, yeah. So they're marching towards Jerusalem, and then this rabbi comes walking to them. This rabbi called uh, Yohanan, John, son of Zakkai, or Yohanan ben Zakkai, and basically says, listen, I know you're going to absolutely obliterate Jerusalem, because let's be honest, God's not even in the building anymore. He doesn't care. You're a mighty warrior. We all accept it. Can I get the city of Yavna? She just asks for it. He just asks for it. Flat out. He's like, look, give me Yavna and its sages is the quote. <laughs> and Vespasian, again, is kind of completely weirded out by the way the Jews are behaving. Because no other people in the world really behave that way. Mm -hmm. And they're also a monotheistic culture who worship a very mysterious god. So deciding he doesn't want to get on the wrong side of this god, he agrees. And actually, Yavna is spared. And so Vespasian then goes to Jaffa because he needs the supplies. And the blockade is broken. And the first ships that come in, uh, do you remember what happened in the 69? In Rome? In 69 in Rome, a civil war broke out. Exactly, because Nero had died. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is now, does Vespasian want to get involved? And you've probably studied this. He was, he was really hesitant. He did not want to get involved. Oh, anything until... at this time period. We're talking about a point in history where to declare yourself Roman emperor was an invitation for a death sentence. That was pretty much the case around all of Roman history to just do that because it was one of those games that a politician could play that was very high risk, very high reward. And that was what would happen. Um, this was one of the first such cases of it. But Vespasian does end up becoming the emperor in 69. And then Titus, uh, and who is his second command, then takes up the rest of the reins of the war. Right. So in 70, Titus, I mean, there's, there's kind of like the, the Vespasian story there, uh, but Titus takes over the soldiers, and he basically, the, the way he does the war is he clears out every town behind him. Oh, um, so yeah. That, he, well, there was a reason why he did that, though, because it just got incredibly, um, it got incredibly brutal. I remember I was going into this for the details. This is, this is some messed up stuff. For anyone that's wondering about what it is that the Jews are during this time, the, the perspective of their leaders, like within Jerusalem, mainly among the Sadduci Jerusalemites, uh, they were like, oh, this is awesome. We're going to be able to have our independence. This is going great for us because initially the Jews were making great ground, like they were making gains. And they knew, though, that unless something dramatic happened, that the revolt was not going to be success. It wasn't going to be successful for long because as the Romans really started to come in, that elation would change to panic and they started to implore the zealots to allow them to please let them surrender peacefully in order to save as many people as possible. And also by that logic of saving people end up saving their own financial lives. Uh, the zealots, however, did not want to do that at all. And so in anticipation of that, the zealots and the more fanatical 
elements within society ended up executing a whole bunch of them and hanging up their dead bodies so that everyone could see the repercussions of preaching insurgent messages of peace. So that, yeah, so that happens. Basically, Jerusalem is having its own civil war right now. Like, just the city itself is having its own civil war. Yeah, because they're and, trying to oscillate um, between surrender or fight it out. And that, in turn, is causing them to fight themselves. Right. And so Titus sees this, and he's like, I don't even need to get involved. I'm just going to you know, walk around here conquering a couple of villages, and when they're done, they're done. So all the moderate leaders that were there at the beginning of the war basically were dead by the middle of it because they had already been killed themselves by their own compatriots. It's kind of like what was happening during the French Revolution of all the moderate elements just getting eradicated by the radicals. And this is kind of where um, the rabbi I mentioned before, Yohanan ben Zakai, comes in is he literally had to escape in a coffin. And in, in a, a coffin. scene out of an action movie. Oh, yeah. Okay, you can tell the story. His, tell the story. I want to hear this. Okay, so he says, I want to leave the city. And the zealots say, that is treason. Are you sure you want to leave the city? And he goes, okay, no, 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 I'm fine. So he goes to his home and he tells his students, we want, I want you to come in every day for the next three days. Every day I want you to leave more worried. And on the fourth day, come out wailing. And say that I'm dead. So they do this, and they and, and so they bring him out in a coffin, and they say his last wish was to be buried in Bethlehem, which is outside of Jerusalem. And so there's this kind of tense moment where it's like religious freedom versus well, it's not even just freedom at that point; it's religious obligation because specifically the dying wishes of a person and burial is so important because you're talking about the majority of the Jewish faith is not dedicated towards life. It's what comes after life. So, well, it's what you do during life so that when you, yeah, so that when you get to the afterlife. So in a scene right out of an action movie, the guards stab their spears right through the box in certain spots and miss him. So that's actually how he got out of the town. But the, other than that, there was no other way of getting out of town. Mm. That is genuinely funny. I can't help but imagine that in that scenario, a thing to do is to like get inside a slightly oversized coffin and surround the edges of it with like a, a dead lamb or something. So that when you get stabbed, blood packs, you know, yeah. blood comes out and that kind of thing. Oh, no, that, that yeah. is good. Okay, so... The civil war is going on in there. He gets out of there. What what happens afterwards? Because at this point, we're talking about the time where Vespasian becomes the new emperor and Titus starts uh, leading in the siege of Jerusalem itself. So when Vespasian becomes the emperor, he sends a message which basically says, finish it. You know, Reasonable. I, I want to do Reasonable. the, uh, yeah, I want to do the uh, emperor voice of finish him. But I, you know, it doesn't work too well. <laughs> You know, but basically that's what he says. And so by this point, there's two main leaders, John of Agascala, who we mentioned earlier, and Simon Bargiora, who we also mentioned earlier. He was the one with the Navy. These are the two main leaders left in Jerusalem. And so Titus has four legions with him. And he approaches the walls, and he's really confident. And the next thing he knows, he's being attacked. Mm -hmm. His rear retreats 
the front of him retreats and he's stuck, you know, in the middle of a cavalry line about to be encircled. And he, I mean, this, the, basically the war nearly ended there. It's one of these insane flip of the coin moments. Because if they had killed Titus, it would have been a complete game changer. Well, I mean, if they had killed um, him, it could have been. A I don't know about that, though. That's the thing. Because potentially there would have been some kind of peace that could have happened or at least a, a time of mourning. But there is no way in hell that the son of the emperor gets killed. And this does not mean that the emperor then decides to burn the entire country to the ground. But they already know that they're going to burn the country to the ground. So yes, they, but they, they can always yeah. be worse. Welcome to history. Everyone could always yeah, do something worse. So Titus actually gets away and described very dramatically in Josephus. And so there are these skirmishes back and forth. And Oh, sorry. I, I don't mean to interrupt here, but I just realized something yeah. from this. Rather than saying that he gets killed, if he was captured... And you're talking about a negotiation things. that could have changed things. Oh, yeah. So there's kind of this give and take. And the Jews are actually giving pretty good. Um, considering the fact that they're mainly armed with slings and javelins. The heavy troops are basically just wearing 12th Legion armor. Yeah. Which leads to several battles at night where nobody knows who anybody is and they end up just killing themselves i mean it becomes urban warfare it's it's a it's a whole yeah. point of confusion though there was um there was an interesting part that i remember about this because the we talked about before the the leadership everything was still a little bit skewed within the city for what it is they wanted to do there were all kinds of different factions among the jewish people that was interfering with what the zealots wanted to do they wanted an all-out war instead of a war of attrition that some of the people there had planned for to try and perhaps negotiate so the zealots what they ended up doing is they decided to make the populace choose by burning the crops and dried foods that had been gathered in anticipation of the siege by by making them fight so there's basically, yeah, that's 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 one of those things where there's a little bit of a point of contention. But yeah, at this point, Titus built a, a wall of circumnavig cir what's it called? Where they build a wall around? Well, yeah, like so he 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 builds a wall surrounding the settlement. It was a common it's Roman eight tactic. Kilometers, to yeah, it's an eight kilometers of wall. And so the zealots look at each other, they realize they're under siege, and they're like, okay, now we burn the food supplies. Which I, I'm just baffled by, like, here's the, here's the thing. I understand doing that, right? I understand doing that and then forcing everyone to march out of the city to go out and fight. But if you were going to be within the walls, d destroying the, your own food supply is got to be one of the dumbest things that I've ever heard of in my life. Oh, yeah. Like, again, well, so the, marching the, out to fight, just saying like, hey, we have no food here. There's only one option. We got to break out and we got to take the fight to them. That is a very risky strategy, but it makes sense. Staying within the walls after destroying the majority of your food. What the hell? So the, 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 the truth most probably is that the zealots destroyed each other's grain supplies. Basically, it was like, you know, 
hey, my grain supply is almost done. I'm going to burn yours so that you're just in the same predicament. Mm. So it's just, I mean, utter stupidity. See, it's a terrible way to just think about this because one of the core strategies of any siege is to try and destroy your enemy's food supply. That is a goal. If you can do that, that is a primary goal if you can get infiltrators into a settlement. Right. And, and what you have to realize... did it to themselves. Uh, yeah, and what you've got to realize is it's not like you can get food. You can't forage for food outside. The legions are basically surviving on, on food that's being brought to them in a supply line because they've just burned everything down. Mm-hmm. It's it like, it, I mean, it's just peak stupidity. Oh, it makes your head hurt. It does. It does. And so as a result of that, what ends up happening is that uh, the city dwellers and the soldiers and the people in there over time starve. And those who did not just outright starve to death would gradually suffer from malnutrition, which would make them weaker for any kind of battles that would occur within the city. Right. So for two weeks, Titus actually does starve them out. And then he he procedurally knocks down parts of the wall. So the city gets smaller and smaller. And as he's doing this, the buildings are all built kind of like um, almost apartment blocks. Imagine having to fight through alleys. Yes. Yes. It, People it, can come from anywhere. No, I, I firmly agree. It's exactly like what you're talking about. This is what I was saying. Urban warfare. This it was straight up urban warfare. You could have a person, and these people are not in big suits of armor or anything like that that are identifiable. It's everyday-looking people in cloth just jumping out at you with a spear. So at this point, Titus makes a decision, which is pretty horrific, where he basically tells his troops, crucify everybody. Yep. Anyone that tries to escape, anyone that gets outside of the walls, anyone that is captured is crucified, placed on a wall, facing the city so that anyone within the wall can see exactly what is going to happen to them. Right. Except a rumor gets out that the Jews are swallowing jewels and gold to smuggle out. So the auxiliaries start fighting over these dead bodies so they can gut them. What the f- what? <laughs> I'm I mean, being completely I mean, it makes serious. Sense. It makes sense if you think about it for anyone that is doing this, because um, this, this isn't a thing that people are saying necessarily as a um, as an anti-Semitic thing. This was a common it's tactic a that was done. People actually did do stuff like this. It's just it's just kind of funny because when you look at how the Roman soldiers were paid throughout history, the way that Romans got their bonuses, their big stuff. That specifically came from after battles or sieges where they were given essentially degrees of looting rights and then were given bonuses in land or other stuff that was captured. That's where a huge chunk of money came for the Roman military. So this is just these guys trying to get their bonuses. That's all they're trying to do. In in a sense, yeah. I mean, it's it's. And, and, and by the way, it was usually first being gutted and then crucified. So oh was, shit! Okay, no, that's that's uh wow. Uh, the the order in that being reversed. I'm imagining yeah. when we were talking about this, people being crucified and while they're still oh, alive, hammered to the top, first then the other they're way. gutted. Yeah, no, that would happen the other way. They would take the bodies down because, well, you know, I mean, they're not getting a ladder. 
Yeah. So they take the bodies down and then put the bodies back up. And I believe this was the Macedonian auxiliaries and the Egyptian auxiliaries at first. And there's a commentary that says that the legionnaires were sitting around thinking, okay, anybody who's not Roman is absolutely crazy. Yep. Oh, like yeah. you see this you see this behavior across the battlefield. What are you gonna think? Yep. Yep. And so now the people within the population are terrified. And then this has a reverse effect though, because it ends up creating the extreme view of you can fight try and death. yeah, you have to fight to the death, basically. That's the only the, thing they can imagine because you have these people outside of the walls that are within full display of if you escape, if we get our hands on you, you will die in the most horrible way imaginable. The the best kind of uh, contemporary example I can think of is Stalingrad, where you have these Russian soldiers who, if they go forward, the Russians kill them. Sorry, if they go forward, the Germans kill them. If they go back, their own army kills them. Correct. You know, so these people were were going out absolutely raving, you know, berserk, trying to die. Just anything to make it quick. <laughs> Basically. And so there's certain fortified positions within Jerusalem still. There's the Antonian Fortress, which uh, Herod built, which it's actually kind of a funny story where the Romans start building a ramp on the side. So what the Jews do is they dig underneath it. And they build up all these wooden supports, yeah, and then they, they light it. them all on fire. Yeah, they, that, yeah. sapping. That, that, that was one of the big siege techniques that was done in history, because the sudden loss of support would lead to a structural collapse. Right. So all these siege towers that the Romans had worked on for, day, you know, for days and weeks, just broken. They're, they're horrified. And then the next night, there's a crash in the middle of the night, and they wake up, and half the Antonian fortress has just slipped off because the sappers had not dug far enough out. So they also damaged their own defenses. Yes. But this is actually some of the nastiest fighting in the, in the war, which is described because this is where you've got people in legionnaire armor fighting legionnaires in dark corridors. And no one can tell really who is who at that point, especially no. within darker alleys. And so what ends up is is the Romans leave and they just pour oil down and they light the oil on fire. Oh, God. They're like, we're not even dealing with this. We're just going to burn them out. They make it into the, the uh, temple. The temple has its own walls. They break the walls on the Hebrew date of the 9th of Av, which can be deemed National Jewish Bad Luck Day. Um, <laughs> It's the same day that the first temple fell. I'm not, I'm, I'm being completely serious. It's the same day that the first temple fell. It's the day of the, the deportations of the, the uh, Warsaw Ghetto. It's um, the worst slaughter in, in, in the First Crusade. The expulsion from Spain, the expulsion from France. The expulsion, it really is Jewish bad luck day. Damn, okay. It's like a reverse uh, Fourth of July. But yeah, they break in and... Um, well, by that time, the zealots and the other diehards within the city had already retreated to the temple. And then they break in and they set the whole thing on fire, don't they? They do, with, with the zealots still in it. And um, there's actually an interesting question here of whether or not Titus said, gave the order to do this or not. I um, don't think that he necessarily would have. 
personally, I think that that's something that considering what the soldiers and auxiliaries were already doing, that that was par for the course. Uh, because, I think it was par for the... Because yeah. you also have to remember that at the time, the way that they would get their bonuses is by looting. You would get... You like you would get additional pay based off what it is that you managed to siege. You had just gone through. It was what like what a six seven month long siege at this point, and so as a result of that, the men are tired. They are angry. They are frustrated. They have been doing this for half a year at this point with no changes, and they've watched all of their uh, brothers being continuously killed. It has been horrible fighting. That is all kinds of anxiety that is going to be induced because of it. I can only imagine the mental point that they were at by the time that they were finally in the temple and they're just faced with all of this wealth that is in there. And well, they... also about that wealth. Yeah, we're talking about that wealth. Mm -hmm. um, according to Josephus, so much gold was taken from the temple that the price of gold in Syria dropped by 50%. Oh. And we're, we're not talking about like the, the great big, you know, uh, menorah and the, the gold. Um, altar and all these things no, no no this was just the the amount of money they had um and and i'll give you an example of why there was a religious tax called the half shekel which every jewish male had to pay and a half shekel is about 13.3 grams we averaged let's say three million people in judea at the time that ends up being set several tons of silver. And that's every year. Mm -hmm. It's a singular tax, and it's supposed to go back out. That's the point, which is kind of why the, the Sadducees became so wealthy and why the temple just had this abundance of gold just sitting there was, you know, Judaism does have a very big point, very big emphasis on kind of taking care of the community which is where the Sadducees and the Pharisees differed. Yeah, because they were hoarding at that point. Right. And so basically what they did was they said, okay, all the oral traditions, we're not keeping them anymore. So they only kept the letter of the actual five books of the Bible, while the Pharisees kept all the books plus the oral tradition. So according to the original trans translation, an eye for an eye literally means an eye for an eye. The oral translation is you get the value of an eye if somebody pokes out your eye because that's a lot less barbaric. And how the value is decided is through a specific uh, literal formula. written word versus cultural interpretation. Right. Or kind of like just using the Constitution instead of like using constitutional law. Yeah, it's like face value rather than interpretation. Right. So even taking the temple, the war is not done there's still half a city left. And so Titus said, basically comes up and he says, I'm willing on accepting your unconditional surrender. And so Simon Bargiora and uh, John of Giscala, who somehow have survived up until this point, uh, come to him and they say, look, we kind of swore to die fighting, but if you let us run away, and Titus is like, go to hell, I'm just killing you all. So yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not going to lead the people. Yeah, oh, so leave some rebels to run away and potentially start up a revolt in another part of another city with more supplies that I would then have to siege again? Really? Yeah. He absolutely flattens it, flattens the city, 
like rips it apart building by building and he finds both of them and uh, we actually don't know what happened to john of giscala but simon is killed at the triumph later on in total and again numbers 97,000 pow's are taken most of which um, are converted into slaves to be used to rebuild things all around the Roman Empire. So every male over 17, which is about 35,000, is taken to work in the small salt mines or to die in the circus. And in fact, 2,500 of the zealot warriors who you know were basically captured while fighting are sent to be killed in the circus in honor of the Emperor Domitian's birthday. It's, it's, he's not the Emperor yet. He's the brother of Titus. Mm -hmm. They then pick out 700, and the term is attractive, um, boys, which I'm, I'm not going to comment on. I, I don't know. Anyhow, they're sent to be uh, ritually executed at the Triumph. And then what it would the mean there soldiers. when talking about attractive is specifically for people that would look the part. You're not going to take people that are necessarily bedraggled or things like that. One of the ways that the right. Romans would hold their triumphs is they would get these people who were conquered, would dress them up in all of their finery, like the biggest, best, beautiful stuff that they could find, put them right. on it, and then would parade them around the city to go, look, look at what we have managed to beat. Because if you drag a bunch of people in chains yeah. and cloth covered in dirt and blood through a city, that doesn't look very impressive. The Romans were people who wanted to put on a show. Right. Well, so I, as part of the Triumph show, uh, these 700 and Simon Bargiara are executed. And in the Triumph, Titus shows off the loot taken from the temple, the menorah, the Torah. The table, which was literally a table made of gold with just think gorgeous gold items. Yeah, everything um, is gold. Everything is covered in gold. Okay. It's just it's just bedecked. Oh, no, it's not covered in gold. Some of it is solid gold. The oh. menorah was solid gold. Oh, I know. That's what I'm saying. There is stuff that is gold. There's stuff that is covered in gold. Everything is like gold themed. Like it's just encrusted yeah. with jewels and items. So you can actually see this on the inside of the arc of Titus, the Arch of Titus, the Triumphal Arch. Mm -hmm. You can see the vision of it, and actually there's there's a version of it where you can see it online where um, somebody has done photographic analysis on it to bring the colors back out. Dang. And it actually looks... Yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating, so it's worth looking up. So in the end, um, all of this happens, and there is a massive effect, naturally, on what happens within Judaism. I mean, the temple so, at that point gets destroyed and it's never properly, it, well, it's not rebuilt then at the time. And it, from this, we see, I'm going to fumble over my words when I say this because it's a little bit, we're not talking at this point about just necessarily history. We're talking about religious doctrine and how it changes. And yes. that's not normally something on this podcast that I go into and talk about because I usually don't like to touch upon as much for beliefs because it can get very specific. But would you agree that from this, you effectively see a new type of Judaism? You see like rabbinic Judaism, where rabbis are now more of the focus of the religion rather than the high priest, because everything becomes very decentralized. Because now you have the Definitely. diaspora. Definitely. I mean, the rabbis existed before. And in fact, Jesus was one of the Pharisees. 
He's he's actually recorded in the Talmud as a rabbi. I don't know if you're going to want to cut that. But he's there. He's one of the Pharisees, and he was prior to the destruction of the temple. And, you know, that, that basic, they basically become the source of religion. They also become the same structure that the temple kind of gave you that that social justice that welfare the who 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 does our community turn to they become the center of the community that everything focuses around because they are really the only kind of institution that is left yes and i mean it's it's a fascinating history which probably you know best left ungone into uh because of people might upset but it it really evolves over the years in a very interesting way honestly as much as i would love to get into all that at this point we have been going for over an hour and i i think that we've we've covered things pretty succinctly here like talking about more going into uh diasporas in fact it wouldn't be fair to really talk about a whole bunch of different ones at the same time because there's so much details that goes into the unique cases from each place like there was a massive difference oh, yeah. between what would happen in, say, the Jews in Al-Andalus in, in Spain versus what we would see later on in like Romania and others. Like, it, well, the, it's, it's right. very so, different. So the Jews, the Jews in Al-Andalus, that's called the golden age of Spain for the Jews. Yes. Like that was, you know, incredible for the Jews. But yeah, no, it's 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 completely different in different places. And in fact, even though the kind of the center of Judaism is wiped out, these other Jewish communities, very large Jewish communities, still exist. Uh, there's a massive Jewish community in Alexandria. There's a massive Jewish community in Babylonia. There's a Jewish community in Rome. I mean, they themselves are kind of expanding and evolving in their own way at that time to deal with, well, we don't have the place that centers us anymore. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, look, there's a lot of other details about this which would have been a lot of fun to talk about yeah there really is a lot of other things that we could be talking about at this point but again we're probably an hour into this there's way too much if we were going to be talking about uh the history past this we're going to be jumping off into way too many tangents even for myself to follow because for anyone who listens to this program they they know that i go off on different tangents talking about different subjects that that is oh, come on, it's happens. only 2,000 years. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just 2,000 years of history. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. But either way. Well, I've had a great time. And thank you, John, very much for joining us. I, I really appreciate um, it. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. Thank you for, for having me. Of course. And if there are any suggestions from what anyone who is listening to this program would like to either for us to cover next, possible guests, anything like that, Please do reach out to me. Send uh, an email here. You can get in contact with us if you just go to the website for historyofeverythingpodcast.com. Contact info is in there. I don't have a listener story for me to bring up here at this point. But besides that, I really do hope that all of you listening have a good rest of your day. Please make sure to check out Patreon. Check out our uh, coffee. Check out everything. Check out the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel. Thank you all for joining us. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Goodbye, everyone.